Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for listening to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metza. Many of us over the age of 50 can remember the date, November 22nd, 1963, vividly, as it was the day President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. The promise of Camelot now seems frozen in time. I was in second grade in Miss Morgan's class at James Madison grade school, and after we heard the news, school was let out for the day. Over the next few days, most Americans were glued to their television sets and radios watching and listening to the events unfold. Two days later, I was watching our yellow Sylvania television with my mother in our living room on the south side of Virginia and witnessed Jack Ruby shoot the alleged assassin Lee Harvey Oswald. In a way, it was the first reality TV show, but for sure it was the second time in two days that I, as a seven-year-old kid, felt the presence of evil in the world. The Warren Commission established by our now President Lyndon Johnson on November 29th, just days after the assassination, investigated the event and concluded in an 889-page document released to the public on September 27th, 1964, that both Lee Harvey Oswald and Jack Ruby acted alone. Ultimately, it created more controversy than consensus, and perhaps we will never know the final answer or the real truth. I am skeptical of the findings of the Warren Commission, and I have visited Dealey Plaza in Dallas twice. In fact, I wrote a 12-verse song called Jack Ruby that traces a bit of Jack Ruby's life and poses questions to who might have done it. Never in a million years did I think I would ever meet someone who was not only on Dealey Plaza on that fateful afternoon, but also was a personal friend of Jack Ruby's. My friend Sherwin Linton met my guest, Beverly Oliver, in conspiracy circles known as the Babushka Lady last January in Texas and introduced her to me. She claims to have taken film footage of the motorcade that was shot during the moments before the assassination that faced the grassy knoll. She has written an intriguing book called Nightmare in Dallas. She is also a professional singer and has taken time out of her busy schedule to talk with us. On the other line, all the way from Texas, Miss Beverly Oliver. Beverly, thanks for taking time to chat today. Well, thank you, Paul. It's a it's an honor. It's amazing uh, that we have a chance to meet via our friend Sherwin Linton. What's not amazing is that both of you are professional singers, and that's kind of how you got your start in the business back at a place called the Colony Club in Dallas. Correct. Well, that wasn't my start. My start was in country music. I started singing on the Big D Jamboree and the Cowtown Hoedown and uh, D Groom's Longhorn Ranch. And I started that career when I was nine years old. And uh, then as I grew older and saw there was more money in the different types of clubs, then I started singing for, uh, uh, for Ed Weinstein next door to Jack Ruby's club. And you were... A bit underage to be in nightclubs at that point, were you, Beverly? No, I wasn't underage to be singing in nightclubs. You can sing in nightclubs at any age. You just can't dance. Oh. I mean, you just can't. Excuse me, you just can't drink and mingle with the customers. But there were dancers as part of the evening's entertainment besides your singing, correct? Yeah, there were strippers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so and often, I'm a- often I'm asked, was I a stripper? And, I, and I'll just tell you right now, I tried it one time, Paul, and the men in the audience kept yelling, put it back on. So I decided <laughs> I better just stick to singing. Well, I'm looking forward to not only meeting you, but hearing you soon one of these days, Beverly. We, you know, reading your book, we could do several episodes on your life. You ha- you've had a very uh, eventful life, very colorful life. But I think for our listeners, what they would like to know is, for the first time, when did you meet Jack Ruby? I was, uh, I think I was 14, maybe 15 years old, and I was coming out of the drugstore of the Baker Hotel, which was just on the corner from where the clubs were, mm-hmm. and uh, I was sneaking out of my home. I was singing then just on the weekends, and I was sneaking out of my home, riding a bus to Dallas. My mom and dad thought I was spending the weekend with a girlfriend named Mary <laughs> Noel Peterson, and I uh, had no idea what I was doing, and Jack realized that, you know, I wasn't. Uh, as old as people thought I was. And so he uh, 
he uh, approached me as I walked out the door and handed me his card and I said, I know who you are. And he said, well, I would like to uh, hire you to come to work at my club. And I said, oh, no, I can't do that. I said, because Abe had warned us. He did not like Jack Ruby at all. Hmm. And uh, I said, I'm under contract exclusively to Abe Weinstein. And so he just started. I said, I have to go. I've got to catch a bus at 1230. So he walked me to the bus station. And from that night forward, uh, when on on a Friday and Saturday night, he would meet me and walk me to that bus station and stay with me at that bus station till the bus came. Wow! And so the Jack Ruby that you all read about is not the Jack Ruby that I knew. What was the shows like at the Colony Club and the shows like at the Carousel in terms of what time did it start, what time did it end, and how did it mix the music with the uh, dancers? Oh, gosh, that's going to be hard. The times are going to be hard for me to remember. Uh, our first show, I believe, was at uh, 8, 8 o'clock. Maybe it was 9 o'clock. And, uh, and then there was another club behind our club that A's brother owned called the Theater Lounge. Mm -hmm. And then uh, there was a parking lot between our club and Jack Ruby's club. And we all staggered the shows so that customers could come and go to all three shows. And um, um, that makes a lot of sense. The other actually. two, the other two clubs, the the theater lounge and the carousel club, only had strippers and a stand up comedian, and of course a band. Mm -hmm. And uh, during the between shows, they played dance music for those who wanted to stay and dance. And uh, but Abe always had what they called a straight act. And I was the straight act at his at his club. I didn't take my clothes off. And Wally um, Wally Weston, who was Jack Ruby's uh, MC at the time of the assassination, had worked at our club. So I knew Wally Weston and Shari Angel, his wife, who was a stripper at, at both clubs, um, knew them very well. But our stand-up comedian was um, uh, Artie Brooks, and he was fantastic. And. Hmm. Um, and we had the Joe Garcia band that played the. He was the only band I ever knew was was uh, Joe Garcia's band. And what kind of uh, instrumentation did uh, Garcia's band have? They had the piano, uh, the stand-up bass, and the drums. Okay. And what was your repertoire at the time? My repertoire. Yes. Uh, different different things. I didn't do country there because it wasn't a country venue, but I did things like fly me to the moon and let me play among the stars and, you know, the, the uh, show tunes and the... Sing another one. That sounded great. Sing another, <laughs> can you, how about Sunny Side of the Street? Grab your hook. Oh, see, grab your coat and get your hat and leave your worries on the doorstep. Uh, life can be so sweet on the sunny side of the street. Oh. Can't you hear that pitter-pat? And the happy tune is yourself. Life is but a treat on the sunny side of the street. Oh, that's wonderful for you. Those of you that just tuned in, this is uh, the Wall of Power Radio Hour, and we just heard some lovely singing by my guest, Beverly Oliver, the babushka lady, who was a personal friend of Jack Ruby's and grew up in the club scene in the 1960s in Dallas. What was, what were the crowds like there? In the well, club? at our club, I would say that probably, um, and I hate to say this, I don't mean to sound snotty when I say this, but Jack's club, the carousel, was not quite up to the same grade as the Colony Club and the Theater Lounge. Mm -hmm. And uh, our club, the Theater Lounge and the Colony Club, the Weinstein Brothers, their clubs were very upscale. They had the best dancers. They uh, had strict rules. Uh, as a matter of fact, you see more on the beach today than you did in those two clubs. Mm -hmm. And um, it they were very well decorated. And so we got a lot of couples. It was not unusual because it was they were very entertainers. The exotic dancers back then were not like the girls are now. Uh, they actually had an act, and it was an art to what they were doing, and it was, it was really pretty. It was more and burlesque, really, than stripping. It as was we know. burlesque, yeah. yes, yeah, it was burlesque, and it was beautiful. And uh, if back then, if 
if it was now back then, I would have taken my husband there. I would not have had any qualms about it. Hmm. So, when did your parents finally find out what you were up to? Well, it really wasn't my parents that ever found out it was it was Abe Weinstein. And he said, okay, we've got to do something about this. And uh, so, we made an appointment with his attorney, and then his attorney and my parents and myself and Abe met. And we did what back then. In the meantime, I cut to Chase about something. I had had a child that I gave up for adoption. Uh, but still, that didn't make me an adult. I was 16 when that happened. And so uh, he um, had, had his attorney draw up papers, and my parents signed it uh, because they knew I was going to do this. I mean, with or without their permission, if I had to run off, I was going to do it. I wanted to be a singer. And uh, so they did what back then was called lifting my minorities and liabilities, which made me an adult. Now it's called emancipation. Hmm. And uh, so at 16, I was made a legal adult. We are going to have Beverly Oliver from Dallas, Texas, known in conspiracy circles as the Babushka Lady, for the entire show today. We'll be right back after these messages. Jack Ruby, Jack Ruby in a Kavanaugh hat. Whoever taught you to shoot a pistol like that? Oh, you snuck in the basement and you stood in the back. Jack Ruby, Jack Ruby in a Kavanaugh hat. Jack Ruby, Jack Ruby, you were 15 years old. On the south side of Chicago, you looked up to Capone. Stole girls' lunch money, beat boys on the way home. Jack Ruby, Jack Ruby, you were 15. Hey, this is Hunter Hawes of the Minnesota Progressive Repartee, and I'm inviting you to celebrate the Blue Wave at the Blue State Ball on Saturday, March 2nd at the Blaisdell in Minneapolis. VIP reception starts at 5, where you can mingle with Tom Hartman, John Fugelsang, Matt McNeil, and all the other AM950 personalities. Then general admission starts at 6.30. This year's ball is sponsored by Howling for Wolves and Northern Sun with food from It's Greek to Me. Don't forget, I'm the DJ of the ball this year, so come party with me at the Blue State Ball Saturday, March 2nd at the Blaisdell. Tickets at am950radio.com. Hi, I'm Scott Peterson with the Minnesota News Network, inviting you to join us this week for Minnesota Matters, a news, entertainment, and sports show covering everything that matters in the North Star State. Tune us in right here or at your convenience at minnesotanewsnetwork.com. Listen to Minnesota Matters every weekend, Saturday mornings at 5.30 and Sunday mornings at 6.30 on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Number one source of the Twin Cities gay scene is all digital. Follow Twin Cities gay scene on Facebook and Twitter. Sign up for the Scene Shot email blast for weekly updates and chances to win great prizes. No app is needed to view the bi-weekly web editions of Scene. It's GLBTQ media for the mobile generation. Find it all at TwinCitiesGayScene.com. That's TwinCitiesGayScene.com. Finding the best foods the Twin Cities has to offer is easy with EatLocalMinnesota.com. Offering the top local and independently owned restaurants, EatLocalMinnesota.com has everything from burger joints to cocktails and fine dining. It's Greek to Me has been a family-owned Lynn Lake landmark since 1982. Under new ownership, the Janakis Karis family offers classically inspired modern Greek cuisine in a sublime space with gracious hospitality. Be sure to visit their charming bar and explore wines and specialty drinks from Greece. Find It's Greek to Me at 626 West Lake Street in Minneapolis or at itsgreektomemn.com. Crooner's Lounge and Supper Club invites you to check out their beautiful facilities for your next special occasion. Book your wedding reception, retirement party, business dinner, or other special event with confidence, knowing their expert staff and award-winning chef will make it a big hit with your guests. Call today to get a quote, 763-571-9020. Did you realize that Drink in the Style is available on iTunes, Google Play, and pretty much every other podcast platform out there? You can listen to past episodes of Drink in the Style or maybe download our really cool martini glass graphic or just listen to your favorite episode again and again. But if you do, I need to ask you for a quick favor. Hop online and give us a five-star rating. It helps others find the show and also boosts my fragile ego. Drink in the Style. It's a great way to kill Sundays or really any time at all. 
You're listening to the Wall and Power Radio Hour, the second set. This is your host, Paul Metza. On the other line, all the way from Texas, a woman who's considered in conspiracy circles uh, with the JFK assassination as the babushka lady, but also a professional singer. Her name is Beverly Oliver, and she spent some time in Minnesota. And we have a few uh, common connections there. Beverly, tell us about how you ended up in the Northland. Well, when and um, uh, July the tenth, nineteen eighty-one, I gave birth to a little girl, and unfortunately, she was born with the same condition as our little boy who died in seventy-seven with a very rare disease called primary hyperoxaluria. And back then, they didn't even know what it was. And the only place that would help my child, uh, help me save her life, was the University of Minnesota. And we arrived up there on December the 1st, 1981, for the first time when she was five months old. January 28, 1982, Dr. John Nigerian, the infamous surgeon there at the University of Minnesota Hospital, took my kidney and put in my six-month-old baby that weighed 11 and a half pounds. Well, she weighed less than 11 pounds. And um, since that time, she's had a total of three kidneys and a kidney and a liver transplant up there. Her last transplant was uh, September the 6th, 1996. She is now 34 years old and healthy as a horse. That is fantastic. But now when you're telling me about uh, transplanting kidneys, I mean, your kidney must have been about just just as big as your daughter. Yeah, she looked like she was nine months pregnant, ready to deliver for a year. But the kidney is the one organ that shrinks to your body size and it also if you put a child's kidney in an adult they may have to dialyze them for a month or two but it will eventually grow to meet the needs of the adult so the only organ that does it so where did uh where did you stay when you were uh when your daughter was having surgery at the u of m were you on campus uh no uh the first time uh there was only one hotel close to the hotel, and it was the Gopher Motel. Sure, no, I Not stayed a very there. nice motel, but we stayed there because it's the only place. And that time, she was in the hospital for three months. And then the second time, they had built that. I don't remember the name of it, but it was a newer hotel down there, real close to the ho- uh, hotel. Not sure. the Radisson, but that other one. We stayed there. And then the third time, when we went up, uh, she actually had two transplants that third time up, and we were there for two and a half years. Wow. Uh, yeah, her hospital bill was $2,638,000. Wow. And uh, so we rented a, um, a university housing. It was an apartment unit about four blocks from the hospital. And we brought my mother-in-law and father-in-law up because my mother-in-law was blind, and I couldn't be comfortable leaving them in Texas. So we brought them up, and we rented a um a nice, uh, I think it was three bedroom apartment, and stayed there for two and a half years. <laughs> wow, my uh, both my mother and my grandfather uh, dealt with Dr. John Nigerian, and mm-hmm. uh, so we are very familiar with uh, our family spending time at the U of M hospital. And I might add, we're very happy to have that sort of facility along with the Mayo Clinic uh, in you, Minnesota. You better be. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's go back now. Let's flop back into the uh, early 1960s. So Jack Ruby used to walk you uh, to the to your bus stop. When did you get to know him better? I know there's a picture in your book, Nightmare in Dallas, that he took. It looked like you were at a cafe or a restaurant or a club. No, it's actually, it was in the, that one was in the uh, the cafe there at the bus station, at the oh, Continental bus station. Okay. And, uh, yeah, that was just a, a couple of months before the assassination. So tell, tell me a little bit about uh, Jack Ruby personally. Well... Uh, he did time. have the vi- he did have the violent temper that you read about, but it was never exhibited toward women, and it he it wasn't something that set off like a firecracker. It, you had to really do something that made him angry. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was never abusive to women. It would be stupid for him to beat his women. They had to get up and take their clothes off at night. What man's going to pay to see a bruised woman? It doesn't even Absolutely. make any sense. Plus, it's not just not the right thing to do. No. And and he was very generous. People don't know that that he um, put on uh, every month, he took uh, a group of entertainers out to the VA hospital and put on a show for free for the veterans. Uh, he raised money for uh, underprivileged children at Christmas time to buy Christmas for these children. He supported two uh, offerings orphan's home, one being Buckner's in Dallas. I mean, he was a very generous 
man. Hmm. He was not the man that you read about. It is so fascinating to hear the other side uh, mm -hmm. of Jack Ruby, and we're going to get into uh, a little more depth uh, about the afternoon. You were there at Dealey Plaza. You took a film that was facing the grassy knoll. But before we get to that, what sort of celebrities used to come into to your club? Was it, uh, was it like uh, uh, sports figures and uh, politicians and the like? Yeah, uh, all the politicians that came to town from Austin that have to come to Dallas to party, they couldn't party in Austin. <laughs> so they hit the downtown, mostly our club, because we did have the best show. And then um, everybody that worked at the King's Club at the office across the street, uh, like Dick Van Dyke, Jerry Van Dyke, um, I can't think of all of them, but, oh, Frankie, uh, Avalon. Wow. Uh, yeah, they all came over to the club. Um, and uh, I'm not going to name the politicians. <laughs> Did you ever get down and play anywhere else in that time, or you're primarily uh, in Dallas, based in Dallas? No, at that point in time, well, uh, I can't think of what year it was now, but he had Rusty Warren in, and he closed the club except for the Rusty Warren Act. And so that month, uh, I was in Bossier City at the Stork Club. Okay. And... Uh, that's the only time I can think of that I worked anywhere else other than uh, no there was another time I went to the Carolinas I don't remember if it's North or South Carolina and played in the Cotton Patch okay and uh, that was a dinner club no and then go ahead. another time I went down to Houston and and I played at the Savoy Hotel and their store club Beverly, that was only weeks at a time they wasn't long periods Beverly Oliver is my guest from Dallas, professional singer, a friend of Jack Ruby's, and was in Dealey Plaza the day of the JFK assassination. Tell me really quickly, we just have about uh, a minute left in this segment. We're going to have Beverly on for the whole hour. Tell us how a night goes. So you, so you start singing at eight. I just want to know kind of the architecture of the singer, the comedian, and the girls dancing. Um. I don't think I quite understood your question. What was it like? Um, did you start singing and then there was a comedian and then dancers? Or what was the no. order of the night? Okay. they uh, He had three strippers. And then uh, um, Artie would do his stand-up routine. Then I would come on and sing. And then uh, the star dancer would close the show. And that would go from 8 o'clock until what time in the morning? Uh, well, we had three shows a night. And so... Okay. Uh, it, uh, we would start, like I said, at about 9 o'clock at night, and we would, uh, the last show would be over with about midnight. And they turn, the shows weren't that long. So they turned the room over, and I imagine charged uh, some sort of a cover for each show. Yeah, well, I think once, I don't remember that, because I wasn't even in on that part of the business, but I think once you paid to get in, you could stay for all three shows. Well, that sounds like a great night of entertainment. We have Beverly Oliver professional singer friend of jack ruby's on the other end of the line and we are going to talk about her afternoon in dealey plaza right after these messages whoever taught you to shoot a pistol like that well you snuck in the basement and you stood in the back jack ruby jack ruby in a cabin The number one source of the Twin Cities gay scene is all digital. Follow Twin Cities Gay Scene on Facebook and Twitter. Sign up for the Scene Shot email blast for weekly updates and chances to win great prizes. No app is needed to view the bi-weekly web editions of Scene. It's GLBTQ Media for the mobile generation. Find it all at TwinCitiesGayScene.com. That's TwinCitiesGayScene.com. 
nourishes us. We need food to live, but how are we nourishing the food system? Well, actually, we're throwing a bunch of chemicals and we're making the dirt dead, and then we're adding nitrates to the water, and we're causing dead zones in the ocean. Oh, and we're also causing climate change. We do that with every bite we eat, but we can create something different. We can switch to a regenerative system, and that's what we talk about every week on Food Freedom Radio. So tune to Food Freedom Radio Saturdays at 8 a.m. or anytime via podcast. Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Waking up is easy when you look forward to breakfast. Serve seven days a week at the Downtowner Woodfire Grill in St. Paul. Try eggs your way with hash browns, bacon, or sausage. There are four delicious varieties of eggs benedict that should not be missed. And buttermilk pancakes, waffles, or French toast are always fresh off the griddle. How about a Bloody Mary or screwdriver from the bar? The Downtowner Woodfire Grill is located at 253 West 7th Street with plenty of free parking. Or online at downtownerwoodfire.com. This is New Beginnings, hosted by award-winning broadcaster and speaker, Freddie Bell. Freddie, this generation of the baby boomers, people are living longer, so the baby boomers are taking care of elderly parents. Let's talk about your health, and specifically, let's talk about Medicare. Our show features the concerns of America's 78 million baby boomers in employment, finance, health and nutrition, and even entertainment. Catch New Beginnings with Freddie Bell, Saturdays at 11 on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Are you concerned about health care reform, deportation, gun violence, the Line 3 pipeline? Learn how to make your voice heard. Register now for the Min by Min Beyond the Vote Conference on Sunday, February 24th at Harding High School in St. Paul. Minnesota artist and Northland Poster Collective co-founder Ricardo Levins Morales will kick off the day as the keynote speaker. The day-long conference features a variety of workshops and activities to help you better understand the issues, boost your activism skills, and connect with activist and advocacy communities across the state. Be sure to visit the exhibitor tables and try out the new hosted interactive walk-up stations. Register today at mnxmn.org. Early bird rates are available through Valentine's Day. Student discounts, scholarships, and child supervision are also available. Or sign up as a volunteer and attend sessions for free. For more details or to register, visit mnxmn.org. That's Min by Min Beyond the Vote Sunday, February 24th at Harding High School in St. Paul. Min by Min, empowering civic engagement in Minnesota. With your AM950 weather, I'm Sam Turnberg. Tonight will be cloudy with a low around 5, and tomorrow we'll have snow with a high near 18. Monday is mostly cloudy with a high near 26. Tuesday, snow with a high near 26. And Wednesday, partly sunny with a high near 20. Don't miss the Healthy Life Expo this Saturday and Sunday at the Minneapolis Convention Center. Up to 200 vendors, four speaker stages, giveaways, and more. The Healthy Life Expo this Saturday and Sunday at the Minneapolis Convention Center. See it all at expoguys.com. That's expoguys.com. You are back with the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metza. And on the other line, a lovely lady uh, from Texas by the name of Beverly Oliver, who is a professional singer. She also happened to be a friend of Jack Ruby's and was in Dealey Plaza on November 22nd, 1963, the day our president was assassinated. Beverly, let's talk about a few days leading up to the assassination. In your book, you said you met two fellows, one by the name of Lee Harvey Oswald, one by the name of David Ferry. Well, David Ferry came about, um, I went to, with Jack, I believe it was in August, maybe July, he said he was going to New Orleans, and occasionally I would go out of town with him. No, he was not my lover, and I don't know whether he was homosexual or not. I was jailbait, so he never tried with me, but he liked to have me on his arm. I was a pretty good-looking girl back then, and uh, he liked to have decoration, and so I went with him to New Orleans, and he hired Jada, and... Um, and John was, was one of the big dancers, right? Yeah, yeah. And then he was looking for an assistant manager for the club. So we get back, and I'm guessing it was probably September, but I, I don't really know the time uh, frame when this guy starts showing up. Now, and let, he let, excuse me for one second, Beverly. So, Dave, so who was David Ferry working for when you said he was looking for a manager for the club? I don't know who David Ferry was working for. Uh, I just remember that 
I, I don't even remember really meeting him in New Orleans. I met him at the club in oh, okay. Dallas. This man shows up, and he's from New Orleans. I'm told that. Okay. And uh, he stands by the door, and he ups himself to the bar pizzas. He would get into Jack's private uh, stock. You know, Dallas would still be YOB in 63. Really? So you couldn't buy a drink. You could just buy setups and beer and wine. But he would go get into the counter, and he would get the scotch out, and he would get a drink. And uh, he would go back to the back of the kitchen. And he'd fix himself on those little bar pizzas that they had back then. You just put it in a little browning oven. And uh, so I assumed that he was the assistant manager. And when I said that to the first investigators I talked to, they laughed at me. But, I, you know, he was acting like it. And then about two to three weeks prior to the assassination, I'd gone over to tell Jada I wasn't going to go to the Alabama with her that night. I had a headache. And I saw her and, and Jack and this other man sitting up uh, at the runway table, which was the, the stage table. And I made my way up, and uh, Jada was sitting at the end of the table. Then there was an empty chair, then Jack, and then right next to the stage was this, was this man I didn't know. And as I got to the table, Jack stood up and pulled my chair out for me. And as I was being seated, he very nonchalantly said, By the way, Beverly, this is my friend Lee Oswald. He's with the CIA. Wow. Well, at 17 years old, I didn't know what the CIA was. Right. And at 69, I still don't know what they are. Hmm. Amazing. And people ask me, are you sure that that, was, that that was Lee Harvey Oswald? Well, I'm not sure, but I can tell you this. It's the same man Jack Ruby killed in the basement of the police station on Sunday. Wow. That is just incredible. I can, I'm replaying those images in my head of that. So let's talk about the fateful day, November 22nd, 1963. You went by yourself, correct, to Dealey Plaza yes, to watch the morning? I did. Tell us mm -hmm. about that day. Well, I had parked my car the night before I went to a party in Fort Worth. And no, it wasn't the cellar, but it was a private party I don't talk about. And I parked my car next door to our club where we bought the parking places about a month. And so the taxi dropped me off. I got in my car. It had turned quite chilly. And I had a um, an all-weather coat, a tan all-weather coat that I put on. Uh, in the back of my car was a was a beach bag, a little, uh, not actually a beach bag, but a little straw bag that I had a bikini in and my bath oil on my uh, tanning oil in and stuff still left from the summer so I emptied that stuff out put my camera my bat, my extra battery my extra film in there and uh, put it on my shoulder and put my coat on and headed out to I was I had no intentions of going to Dewey Plaza I just wanted to get close enough on Main Street to see the president and get a film and, what, and, so and Beverly I, let me ask you where did you get the uh, camera from a friend of mine that worked for Eastman Kodak uh, had gone, he managed the one there at Six Flags Over Texas, and I met him when I worked there before I went to work for the Colony Club. And, uh, and we his were name was, what was his name? Lawrence Taylor Ronco Jr., and okay. they called him Larry. Okay. And uh, he lived in Rochester, New York, and uh, came down here to manage that store. Well, he went back to Rochester to get some stuff and spend some time with his family and when he came back he had this camera that he was going to try to wait and give to me for Christmas but he couldn't stand to wait that long so he gave me the camera and it was I don't it was an eight millimeter of some kind I don't know but it was Yashica it was a prototype experimental camera it took a square magazine load and I had to send it to Rochester to get it developed sure. I couldn't, couldn't, you couldn't just drop it off at a drugstore and get it developed and so and he gave me 12 envelopes and i had 12 rows of film and uh so i was making my way um i would be west on commerce street uh, walking down to try to see looking down side streets to see if i could find a place to get up close to the curb and there wasn't that crowd was humongous it was worse than texas ou weekend mm -hmm. and i kept walking and of course it my walk led me down to Dealey Plaza, and I saw the way the line, the people were lined up, so, you know, it didn't take a blonde to figure out that's the way the motorcade's going to go. So I made my way across the two grassy triangles down to the very end of the line, almost, where there's very few people standing. And, um, and unfortunately, that wound up being right across the street from Abraham Zabruder, who took the famous uh, Zabruder film. Right. So, you remember the I'm sure the crowd was very fired up as the uh, motorcade turned down to uh, onto Houston. And uh, well, go ahead. You could hear them yelling as he was coming down Main Street. 
And you could tell when he was getting closer because the crowds got louder. And of course, as he turned on Houston, it was just almost um, deafening. When he turned on to Elm, it was amazing. Hmm. <laughs> and there was a kind of uh, electricity in the air that day that was the kind that makes your hair stand up on the back of your neck and on your arms. There was so much excitement in Dealey Plaza that day. So I find it hard to believe that Dallas hated jo- hated John Kennedy. Wow. So it turns, and you you fire up your camera. What just as he's turning from Houston onto Elm? Well, before I I took my camera out, made sure it was loaded right, made sure everything was working. Took you know just took film around the Dewey Plaza, around the buildings, and because uh, I'd never been down there, and uh, just making sure that I knew for sure how to operate that camera right and then as they turned onto elm street i started filming and just right after he turned onto elm street uh there was a noise that went bang 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 and i did not realize paul that those were shots it sounded Mm. like somebody had allowed their kids to bring those poppers that you throw on the cement and they pop you don't have to light them or anything right and i remember thinking distinctly why would somebody let their kids bring something like that down here today right and just i kept filming and i'm walking in concert filming in concert and as you got just to my left a little bit uh there was a noise that went boom and when that boom happened he went violently back and it looked like the whole back of his head came out over the trunk of the car. Wow! It, blood, just like a bucket of blood, had been thrown out of his out of his head. It was the most horrific thing I have ever seen in my life. Wow! And so, I, I remember it today, just like it happened yesterday. I imagine then at that point you you stopped filming and were just uh, horrified. Well, they have a picture of me, and I think it's in my book, where I'm standing there. Everybody else is on the ground. I'm standing there with my camera to my chest. I was in shock. I bet. One of the questions that I always get asked was, did the limousine stop? Mm-hmm. I don't know, Paul. The whole world stopped for me at that moment. Right. It was like everything was suspended in time. I could not move. But at some point in time, I was able to walk across the street thinking they're going to want to talk to me in a minute because I saw them take people aside like Jean Hill who was standing there by me. The lady in red is they call her. Yes. Uh-huh. And I noticed that some people were talking something. They well, they're going to want to talk to me in a minute. So I walked across and stood in a group of people. No, I'm not the one you see on that crazy film on, on uh, YouTube of me running up the stairs. That's another lady. She's got on a flower, flowered headscarf. Mine was a gently lace headscarf. And it's like I was the only one down there with a coat and headscarf. I know there was probably 20 women down there with headscarves and all with their coats on. But that's not me. I stood right across the street, right at the base of the steps, and I stood there and waited until I saw Roscoe White, who was a policeman in Dallas, walking down the actual grassy part of the knoll like he was coming from the pergola. And uh, I made eye contact with him. His wife was the hostess for Jack Ruby. So I knew him. I only knew him as Geneva's husband. But when we made eye contact, Paul, I knew that if they wanted to talk to me, he knew how to get a hold of me. And this was before the days of, you know, even two-way radios. Uh, Special people had those. So we didn't have cell phones or anything. I didn't know what had happened to my president. I didn't know if he was alive or dead. I didn't know if everybody in the car was dead. I didn't know. I wanted to get to a radio to see what had happened to my president. So I left and walked up there and got in my car, and I had an old Buick. And uh, the radio wouldn't work in the high buildings downtown, so I didn't hear the announcement until I got out on 75 North Central Expressway at the old um, Holiday Inn that was there just right on the outskirts of downtown. Did you? And I pulled over and cried for I don't know how long. Oh, my God. I'm sure you did. Did you hear shots from the grassy knoll or see smoke? I uh, I saw smoke. Uh, I I can't to this day say that it was gun smoke. Uh, um, I now I think that it was. Now that I was a, an executive uh, or not executive, but a, an advisor on the movie JFK, mm-hmm. and the the first day that they reenacted the shooting, I knew what I what I smelled that day. Okay, and it was gun smoke. But by the time I saw it, it was wafting through the trees. 
Hmm. And I do know, um, and the only way I will ever change my mind, Paul, is for the Lord Jesus Christ to come and stand down here and tell me I'm wrong. Hmm. But the shot that killed the president came from the picket fence area. It hit him in the soft palate of the temple, blew the soft palate out, and continued to travel through his, back through his head and blew the whole back of his head off. Wow. You were a, a firsthand witness to one of the most terrific events in crime in in American history uh, it's, it's just it's kind of taking my breath away just uh, imagining that day so many of us now know know it from the photos that were there there's a Bruder film and of course uh, the dozens of books that are out there about the conspiracy theories and whatnot Beverly, well, what happened to my film was um, the Beverly, let's, let's let's hold that till the next okay. segment, okay? Okay. Um, we are talking with Beverly Oliver, the babushka lady, uh, as she is known in conspiracy circles around the JFK assassination, telling us this incredible story uh, of her friendship with both Jack Ruby and November twenty second, nineteen sixty three. We will be back with Miss Oliver in the last set of the Wall of Power Radio Hour after these messages. with vacuum cleaners. You buy them, you break them, then you throw them away, right? Well, not necessarily. Often, fixing your vacuum can be cheaper than replacing it. Ever heard of A1 Vacuum in Roseville? They offer free estimates. So if you wish your vacuum worked like new again, drop by. A1 Vacuum is ready to help clean up your vacuum cleaner act. Find us at a-1vacuum.com or call 651-222-6316. Crazy about pets? We are too. The Pet Connection Show is a great venue for fun, informative, and creative conversations about pets. Join myself, Kathy Menard, and Dr. Nicole Parole, along with guests who are leaders in the dynamic and growing pet industry, as we discuss healthcare, relationships, behaviors, and even political issues as they relate to our pets. So come, sit, stay for the Pet Connection Show, Sundays 11 a.m. to noon on AM 950 Radio, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Hey humans, this is me, Ellie Krug with Ellie 2.0 Radio. Ta-da! I'm putting on another Gray Area Thinking Human Inclusivity training and I want you to come. It will be at Open Book on Washington Avenue in Minneapolis on Saturday, March 16th from noon to 2 p.m. You can learn more or buy tickets by Googling Eventbrite Gray Area Thinking or by going to the Human is Human page on my website at elliekrug.com. Again, this is on Saturday, March 16th. See you there! This is Chad, owner of AM950. I've been telling you about my friends at Snap Construction who are arguably the most well-reviewed exterior construction company in the metro. Don't just take my word for it. Take a look at all their reviews online. Winter is the most cost-effective time of the year to complete your construction project. A majority of Minnesotans choose to have their work completed on their home in the summer when they should be enjoying the weather. As a result, the demand for labor in the summer is much higher. The most cost-effective way to improve or restore your home is in the winter due to the lower demand. Right now, Snap Construction is offering an additional 30% off of labor to the AM950 listeners on your next construction project between now and the end of February. Call 612-333-SNAP and mention AM950 for an additional 30% off. As always, Snap Construction stands by their work with a lifetime craftsmanship warranty. Don't wait to get a free estimate by calling 612-333-SNAP or find them online at snapconstruction.com. Financing options available. Hi, this is Charlie. Dad, do I have to say this next line? Do you want to sleep inside tonight? My dad is beloved, world-famous radio broadcaster Matt McNeil. Perfect! Anyway, my mom and dad want me safe when I'm driving in winter weather. That's why the vehicle they trust is the Toyota Sienna, and the dealership they trust is Rudy Luther Toyota. They keep me safe. With my son driving this winter, I trust Rudy Luther, and you can too. Stop in today and become a Rudy Luther Toyota family. The southeast corner of 394 and 169 in Golden Valley. You're back with the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metza. 
On the other line, my guest for the entire show, Miss Beverly Oliver, a woman who's called the Babushka Lady, as she was in Dealey Plaza on November 22nd, 1963, and witnessed the assassination of JFK. She's also a professional singer and a lovely lady. She spent some time in Minnesota, and uh, we ended the last segment talking about the film that she took that day, the film that was facing the grassy knoll. And now, Beverly, tell us what happened to that film. Well, I didn't go to work until Monday night. I just could not. And I kept myself knocked out with sleeping pills with two and all. And I couldn't, I just couldn't make myself get up and go to work. And finally, Monday, my mother, smart mother that I had, told me I wasn't going to lay there and vegetate. I was getting up and going to work. And I did. And when I got to the club, you, our club, you walked up a flight of stairs and there was a landing and you went up another flight of stairs and into the club. And this uh, was the, the Colony Club, right? Colony Club. Yes, okay. the Colony Club. And uh, I opened the door and I realized that there was two men standing on the landing, but it didn't concern me because a lot of people would stand there waiting for their, you know, the rest of their party to catch up with them. So I just walked on up and as I approached them, the taller of the two men stepped forward and he said, Miss Oliver, and I said, yes, he introduced himself. He was uh, Regis Kennedy with the FBI. He had proper identification. And he said, uh, we understand that uh, you were down at the grassy place. He didn't call it. You know, daily positives of the grassy place taking uh, pictures when the president was killed. I said, I was taking a film. He said, Have you had those developed yet? And I said, No. He said, Where are they? I said, They're in my camera. He said, Where is your camera? I said, It's right here in my makeup kit. We all carry the little train cases with our makeup in it to do your makeup when we got mm-hmm. the right lighting at work. And he said, well, we want to take that film and get it developed and look at it for evidence. And he said, We'll get it back to you in a few days. Well, laying right next to that camera in my makeup kit was a Prince Albert Canville marijuana. <laughs> and as you know, Candy Bar, just a couple of years before, had been sentenced to 15 years in the penitentiary for less than a half an ounce. Wow. So I would have given him my soul had he asked me for it. So I, uh, in a way where he couldn't see into my makeup kit, I got my camera out and handed it to him. He unloaded it. He took the magazine and he put it in his pocket. He didn't put it in a bag or anything. He just slipped it in his pocket. And he said, well, we'll get these developed and we'll get them back to you in a few days. Well, I was 17. I wasn't smart enough to ask for a receipt. I just wanted them out to get away from me. And, um, of course, that was um, 52 years ago. And uh, no one's seen my film since. And when we make requests for it, like one guy requested it for me. And the uh, document that came back says... uh, the film which was taken, not claimed to have been, not supposedly, but the film which was taken by Beverly Oliver was not retained by this office. Hmm. So does that mean they ran it across the hall so they could say that? Or they've got it in, you know, the underground whatever? Right. I don't know. Now I can't get it. Now what is the, there's another film now that, have, uh, is it the Nicks family that's trying to um Yes, Gail to Nicks. Get back? Uh-huh. Do you know Gail those Nicks. people? Yes, I know Gail. Uh-huh. And uh, and tell us a little bit about the next film. I've just read a well, little bit about I, it. I really don't know anything about the films and stuff, Paul. I, I don't go, I don't read the books. I have them all. I don't read them and I don't watch the things. because Just watch the part about me and cut it off because someday I hope to get on a witness stand and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And I don't want what I saw and what I felt and what I heard and what I know to be confused with other people's stories. Wow, that is very noble of you, uh, Beverly. I love that. Do you think the Do you think the finals, are we ever going to know? No. What no. did you feel like when you saw your friend Jack Ruby shoot Lee Harvey Oswald, the man that you thought you had met? I was in complete shock. I didn't think I met him. I knew I had met him. I mean, you know, the, the camera is right on his face when Jack Ruby shoots him. I mean, there's no... And also, when he walks out the door, you'll have to look at it again and see. When he walks through that tunnel uh, and out to the crowd, he looks right straight at Jack and smiles. Hmm. Boy, I, now, I don't know that. if he was saying, I know what you got to do, buddy, or he thought he was coming to get him out. I don't know, but he looks right at him and grins. Wow. Now, you... On the break, you told me that you're friends with Officer Lavelle. What was Lavelle's last name? 
Lavelle is his last name. Oh, Jim Lavelle. James Jim Lavelle, Lavelle and who, who was the one that was escorting Oswald? Yes, he was one handcuffed to, to Oswald. Mm -hmm. And and uh, Mr. Lavelle, Officer Lavelle, is, is still alive. Does he ever share with you what his thoughts were about that? Oh, he supports the Warren Commission one hundred percent. And but the way we, the way I handle that is, is that he would all he knows is what he was said. Right. He wasn't down there. Hmm. And uh, my my cousin was Jack Revel, who was the head of um, of intelligence in Dallas at the time of the assassination. We handled it the same way. I know what I saw. They know what they were told. And you were uh, an assistant and advisor for Oliver Stone's movie, JFK. Yes. I was the only one hired from the first day of rehearsing to the last day of filming. And uh, was it... What was the actress that played you? Uh, Lolita Davidovich. A lovely lady, almost as pretty as you. I've seen the uh -huh. pictures in your book, Nightmare in Dallas. And uh, I'm going to go back and, and reread it. It is such a fascinating story. Um, Thank you. You've led such an interesting life. You're a, a true survivor. I love your spirit. Um, you're, we could do a couple of shows just on your ex-husbands. Um, a couple. <laughs> I only of, had one ex-husband. <laughs> well, he was, that was the guy, George. The, the, yes. Yeah, well, he yes. was, uh, uh, let's say, I. you know, how would you describe George? I, I don't want to describe him for you, but he was... Um, As to who he was? Yeah, he was a bit he of He was a, the alleged leader of the Dixie Mafia. He was a hit man, accounted with 19 murders here in Texas at the time. He was shot in the back four times in the abdomen once. Wow. And a gangland flame. We, we might have to... That, that might be its own episode. And then a year and seven months later, I met and fell in love with Reverend... Dr. Charles, Jasper Charles Massey Jr., and we have been married for 44 years. Well, bless you. Uh-huh. And um, so my life took a 180-degree turn. Well, Beverly, thank you so much uh, for chatting with us in the Wall Power Radio Hour today. This is just a fascinating story. Of course, it, it uh, hits home to me very personally because I've been following it for 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 several decades, I want to. Never give up. Oh no, I won't, Beverly. Well, I'll tell you what. Um, I look forward to meeting you. I'd like to have you on the show again, but in the meantime, have a, just a terrific holiday. Uh, give my best to your daughter. We'd love to see you up in Minnesota. I know you love uh, the winter up here. You're welcome. I do. You're welcome I anytime. Do. Well, I appreciate that, and you let me know when you come back to Dealey Plaza, and I'll give you a good tour. I would love that. Beverly, bless you and have a wonderful holiday and uh, we'll talk soon. Bless you, Paul. Thanks for listening to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This show is produced by Paul Metzler, engineered by Brad Canabra, and recorded at the Minneapolis Media Institute. Remember to support our sponsors. Follow us online at wallofpowerradio.com. Our webmaster is Brent Sorry from Range Computing in Virginia. We'd like to thank our guest, Beverly Oliver. Her book, Nightmare in Dallas, can be found on Amazon.com. Remember to be kind and make someone happy.